0: All right, so uh, hello and welcome to the eighth episode of the Awesome Algo podcast. Today's guest is Patrick Bennett. He is a CEO at a company called TXN Lab. TXN Lab Inc is a development company that is basically focused on building Web3 applications on Algorand. And uh, Patrick has a very extensive experience in software engineering industry of b- basically covering year four decades, and we're certainly going to spend a brief first part to touch on his biography and the story behind founding of the TXN Lab. But of course, the main topic of the episode is going to be focused around the main product offering by TXN Lab called NF Domains. As always, I did my due diligence to prepare for this episode by getting familiar with the product and reviewing the documentation that is kindly provided through Gitbook. And we have a lot of interesting topics to cover in this episode, and with that, let's proceed. First of all, Patrick, thank you very much for coming to the show. I'm very happy we found some time to accommodate this episode, and it's incredible to have Another CEO representing a prominent platform in the Algorand ecosystem. So tell me a bit about yourself and how you got into engineering in the first place. And we got plenty of time for each section, so don't feel constrained or
1: yeah. crushed, so. <laughs> big topics. Huh? Yeah, I is Patrick Bennett, as you mentioned, CEO, co-founder of Transaction Lab. How I got into software engineering, it goes back to when I was pretty young, like nine or ten or something like that. And it was there was a school I was at. I was going to go to middle school, and I found out that a different school that I had potentially had a chance to go into had computers. At the time you didn't wasn't really didn't really have that. And I don't recall how I got that wild hair of sorts, but I decided on the day of signing up for school with my with my parents are going in the line I decide I don't want to go here I want to go to the school and they were like what I made a big scene and stomach feet, no I'm not going to go here and so I'm going to go into a different school and because they had computers and I they had a in the science class I think sixth grade they had three or four Tandy trs 80 model ones and it was like an elective thing at the end of the end of the school day where the teacher would just give you a book and just, here you go, play. There was no, you weren't taught or anything. And so I just started with a programming book, learned to program, and started coding. And quickly was creating games and things for other students to play in the classrooms. And then that was back when you had to start with our cassette tapes on those particular computers. They had 4K of RAM and would load them up between periods. And then students would play the games. And I had to reload them for them at different times because they'd get reset first for class stuff. But uh, yeah, so I started programming from round 10 and then progressed to, I got the original IBM PC when it came out. It was 16K of RAM, upgraded to 64K of RAM with two floppies, a CGA monitor and Epson dot matrix printer, I think. And at the time that was like, I look back at my parents spent on that. It was like six thousand dollars in nineteen eighty one, so it was a significant investment. But you know, my parents could t- clearly tell that this was my thing. Like I was just consumed by it. And so, any programming books, I would hit the b- bookstores. I would get program books. I was going to a user group, a local user group meeting, and someone handed me K in our C programming language book and like, here, learn this, C is the new cool thing. And there was like speakers coming to our users group that were now quite notable people. They were authors at the time who were just trying to get their books known. And Here's a book on C or whatever, and come and speak. And it's, okay, this seems cool. And I was probably 13 doing that. And so I learned C and wrote like a programmer's editor, a C programmer's editor that I released as Shareware. I think that was from like 14 or 15, maybe. And then I'd learn assembly because uh, as you displayed on the screen, if you just basically had to push the bytes to, it was basically the the screen was directly addressable where you had a byte for the character and then bytes for the color, foreground, background, color, and flash and stuff like that. So basically, you would just assemble the image and throw the bytes to the memory buffer of the screen. But then if you did it during the refresh, it would sparkle. You get these sparkles. It would be like snow on the screen they called it. So then you had to kind of learn some assembly because you had to watch a particular memory address or register. For when the uh, the monitor was in the process of refreshing. So there's a CRT as it's as a scan aligns right before it goes back up and redisplays the screen. You had to wait until that moment when it's getting ready to go back up and redisplay the screen. And you'd throw everything into the buffer during that period. So that way as you scrolled through your editor and page up and page down and stuff, it was like instantaneous. So yeah, then I got into programming with a mouse and you had to do the hard work hard for that. and Just went from there. But yeah, so I started young and learned everything I could. And I, I warned you, I, I can get sidetracked pretty easily, so I apologize. But no yeah, the, this, it, it was a, it definitely was something. I, yeah, I, I, it was basically started very young and it was something that was just clicked for me. I liked creating things. I liked being able to write software and have something produced from it. And it, it, well, there was something that was just fun for myself, but I really also enjoyed creating things that other people enjoyed. So that was the most fun. If I wrote it, they wrote a game or something like that that their students were really into, that was really cool. So I even had, would send out, hand out graph paper to students to help design levels. And for one of my games that was kind of like a pitfall sort of game. So I had people design different levels and I told them like certain sort of symbols would be certain triggers in the game. And I would tell them how to do that. And then I have them do levels for me.
0: Awesome. Pretty cool stuff. That's also great to highlight the fact that it's always amazing to see when parents are very supportive of things that kids are interested in and they can sort of, And uh, in this game, passions, add, you know, it's very important. Yeah. yeah
1: my dad's much older now, and he'll still say quite a bit, He says the best investment he ever made. Because it, at the time it was a lot, but it, that was because it was so clearly my passion. I'm just thankful that my parents saw that and supported it. And I just it went from there for my entire career.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing those insights.
1: And- <laughs> I went back very, you asked when I started, that's when I started. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Going a bit further, I'd be also very interested to hear like your first exposure, or I guess your first fascination with distributed systems in general, because I think it's a useful prerequisite for blockchain systems. And after that, it would be great to, to hear how you first got introduced to Algorand ecosystem and how... Yeah, was- to,
1: to varying degrees, depending on what sort of development you do, you had to be exposed to to network uh, topologies and design. To a certain extent pretty early on, like one of the first things I wrote for a small print shop, and this was in the early 80s. they would fax quotes to customers and they were one of the few that would do it electronically. And Intel had a fax board and it would just it was a, an ISA card that had to be in a specific computer that it's, it was a hardware board. They would had phone lines into it and they could send faxes. I had to write a TSR, a Terminate State resident driver, or DOS, that ran the computer. And then I used, at the time, NetBIOS, I think, to basically, I had to write networking code to allow all the other computers in his system, ran my software as well, for his for management software, so that they could send faxes from any computer. But so I had to have a... a like the TSR running on this one computer that acted as a server of sorts for being able to relay and send faxes. And then that was very early. And then you didn't even have TCP IP relay stacks. Like it used to be, you actually had to pay money to even have IP as a stack. On so,
0: sorry, this is once again, late, late 80s? This was things?
1: this would have been, so This is the Intel fax board. So this would have been nineteen eighty five or six maybe mm-hmm. oh yeah um, That's And so that would have been I'm trying to think which networking was being used at that time, but it was listen to me it was like a coax based and that was I'm trying to think it was a star configuration. but basically you had to connect all the computers in line basically. and it was interesting. but that was very early on and having to do my own sort of network programming to a great extent. But then later on, I was I went into consulting, doing consulting for early on. It was the big thing, the big rage was client-server databases. Then that's more you're really dealing with those protocols. Then from consulting, I worked for in consulting. I went worked for a telecommunications software company for 18 years called Interactive Intelligence, that made basically really sophisticated call center software for really like large enterprises, large call centers. And a lot of what I did was more systems level programming, just low level C. But then an example of project I worked on there was something for an early an an early service that predated a lot of as well before iPhone, all that kind of things. And before you really even had necessarily good IP or on the phones, the first clients that were supported this application basically you would basically with a drag and drop environment create an interface and be able to push it out to mobile clients that and they could then interact with all of the company's backend tools and so you could handle phone calls all that from your Blackberry. So I ended up implementing TCIP effectively on top of the Blackberry data network, which was basically like pager based. So it was in a sense, it's like the BlackBerry packet messages were almost more like tweet and like UDP because they're not guaranteed. And then I had to implement a an IP retry and sequencing mechanism on top of that so that you could get reliable, a reliable network on the BlackBerry devices and be able to run like full applications on them with all data. And yeah, and then as far as our network services within our application, I've been, done, I've been involved in network programming for a long time. So that kind of goes, it falls in line with supplies. for me in general, it's just it's a lot of times it's a networking issue.
0: I see. And I suppose after this introduction, this also certainly leads us into, I guess, more specific topics of one particular application of distributed systems called blockchain. When we speak of blockchain, I guess it would be to hear your first experience with Algorand in general, I know that NFD Domains was one of the winners of the grant from Algorand Foundation, and there was some significant support in that regard. But I'm really curious to hear the story before that, like what led you to start uh, the TXN lab in general and the Uh, decision making behind picking NFD Domains as your sort of first main uh, offering.
1: My first exposure to Algorand was I was going to a Gophercon uh, conference, which is a Go programming language conference, and I attended every single year. This was in San Diego that year, to think was twenty nineteen, maybe twenty twenty. Yeah, it was like I think it was twenty nineteen, and it was like late twenty nineteen. And usually, I go like the day before. To, I, I usually go to like those full day like classes, full day courses, and just find a topic before the conference. So I was there the night before that. And I was like, what can I do? And I was looking, I saw on meetup.com there was a blockchain meetup. And there was a blockchain meetup for Algorand. And Jason Mothersby was there talking about he ended up talking about Algorand. And it was a very small meetup. there was maybe like 11 people there. It was like a very informal uh, Jason Mothersby. He's the head of developer relations at Inc. And Yeah, he was up there talking. He was talking about Algorand, and I had at that time already. I think I was already running a Bitcoin node. I was already pretty familiar with Bitcoin. I was looking at Cosmos. Like Cosmos had a booth at GoForCon, for for example. They're definitely they're courting Go developers because it's also written in Go. A lot of the chains are. And I think I already I think I already had some Cosmos swag or something that was carrying. I don't know. And so I went to that, I knew nothing about grand never even heard of it. And he, Jason's talking about it, It's unique consensus and all these great things about it and how fast it is and all of that. And at the time I didn't, I had, it was basically, it was coming, I was coming in cold. So I knew nothing about it and to have like a, a slide deck where someone kind of walks through it you're kind of like, okay. And so I listened to it, but I didn't really get any of it. I didn't. It just didn't register, but it kind of planted the seed that at least I was familiar and knew the word algorithm and could place it like, oh yeah. And so I want to say that I was working about the 40 minute commute each way at the, the big cloud company I was working at the time. And I would listen to podcasts on the way to and from work. And I remember listening to maybe Unchained. One of those, it's one of the podcasts where they talked to Silvio for a good amount of time. And it be it the
0: Alex Friedman one,
1: no, that, it, that, hmm. was, that was quite recently. This was in like 2019, mm-hmm. 2019, or, or maybe very early 2020. All right, and it was a really good ch- chat with Silvio where he actually went into detail about. Like partition attacks against Bitcoin, we kind of talked about the pros and cons of Bitcoin. How it's not partition resistance, and why. Talked about the consensus of Algorand and how that worked. And then the interviewers were technical and were asking kind of pointed technical questions about, oh, then couldn't they influence the blocks to, to influence the committee and this and this? And Silvio like, oh, da, 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 no, and he went into full detail like as Silvio did, and it was a fantastic podcast. And I think that uh, listening to that and then having that kind of little earworm still from before where I had been to the meeting, I was like, you know what? I need to look at Algorand, algorithm. And I think I was already running a Cosmos node at that time as well. And I loaded node, built it from source, started running it like the configuration, like in general, compared to other nodes and things to the Cosmos like the setup configuration of the algorithm node was like light years better than cosmos. Like Cosmos, you had to find like the magic blog post and you'd go through three or four or five levels deep and find, oh, I need to add these particular IP addresses and nodes to this config file to bootstrap. Like they they changed and moved around. So it was like it was it took a little bit to get it up and running. Whereas for algorithm the at least I felt the documentation was fantastic. There some little things missing, but like overall I got the node up and running very quickly. And then I wanted to learn more about, okay, like I want to participate in consensus. so I, I can stake my algo right, algo and set a participation key. And so I set a participation key. Then I was like, how do I know I'm really participating, right? Yeah, I have a participation key, but is it really working? I wanted to know. And it's, oh, like that would, I was asking in the, in the D- Discord. And at that time, it was very quiet. I was like active people there. And so I was asking, like, how does this work? How does this work? Or like, how do I know it's broadcast? How do I know it's proposing? And they would like, I oh, you check this. And I would grep the log and I would see it. as like, yeah, I don't trust it. Like, just because my local machine says it proposed, did I actually propose? Did anyone else in the world see my proposal, right? So then I started like digging into the code right? I wanted to figure it out. Okay. I want to like, it's going through the code, went through the source and each kind of question I asked, I usually would go through the source to try to answer it. And I ended up writing like code to fetch, look at all the blocks So I, I ran an archival node. So I would look at every single block and analyze it. And I would look to, to verify that the blocks that were actually proposed and stored, did they match my expectations Mm -hmm. like were my votes in that block or my proposals in that block so if i proposed am i seeing my proposals right is so basically like looking at the the blocks and seeing did i actually propose something here like it says i proposed but was actually accepted i want to see that acceptance it says i voted do i actually see that vote and there's the proposal step the soft votes and the certification votes Certification votes are stored in the block, but what's interesting is they're not, they're going to be stored in the block for each node, but be specific to each node. So that's something to learn. It kind of makes sense when you think about it in terms of distributed programming, networking. But talking to other node runners, I was like, hey, what's your block look like? Okay, what are your votes? That's weird. How come your count, your votes are different than mine? Then... You you worked out that, oh, it makes sense because the timing, like you received yours in a different order and yours reached the committee threshold sooner than mine did. But we still reached the threshold. And then so you'd see the certification votes that would be different or in a different order. But just so it's a part of running my own node, participating and wanting to answer all those questions, I dug deeper and deeper into it and just loved it. And then as the more I did that, the more other chains that I would either install or already were using started to look not so nice. And then I continue to do that. I can install and add an avalanche node running for a while and this was much later. And then the differences are quite stark and it was not kind to avalanche in terms of like Algorand just crushes it efficiency wise. I see.
0: But, I, see. Yeah, I wonder it's just, if any of those stuff. tools that you used to learn more about the consensus are something that you eventually propagated with, with folks over Discord or? Because oh, I know oh, yeah. since I mean, the, the, 2019, there's, there's, there's been quite a few tools to, for monitoring the uh, the participation notes, I believe. Yeah. But yeah, I can imagine the 2019 scene look drastically different.
1: Yeah. So I didn't, I wasn't really into it like aggressively until I, I think my first algo purchase was March of 2020. So I want to say like me getting like really into it was probably February of 2020. Mm -hmm. And then from there, and then I forget, I run a Telegram channel as well. I forget when that one got started, but, but yeah, so I've been in, in it like aggressively since early 2020.
0: Awesome. That, that, that's a very interesting insight. And uh, it's awesome to see that Silvio's uh, talks and lectures and podcasts is an entry point for many people to the ecosystem. It, it, because Yeah, it is.
1: And I try to convey that. I think at times it's it's hard to, you know, people need to be themselves. And it's, you can tell it's like, you, it, you don't want Inc. or anybody like kind of like forcing yeah. Silvio to doing all these things that just isn't really, he wants to research and, and just let him be what he excels at. That said, the times he does talk, a lot of times he's fantastic. He's very personable, very engaging, and typically explains things, you know, very well. Yeah. for something I mean, his, his very, ability very to topics.
0: make very complex and exotic cryptography, cryptography explained in very simple terms or very simple references yeah. to the economy or just general governance models is amazing. That's, I guess, certainly something that... Uh, a good academic should 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 strive for in especially in the domain of computer
1: science. But uh... so yeah, I, I would like hint to the algorithm people sometimes. I have been done it lately. Just hey, can you get him to talk at least once a month or something? <laughs> but there's no question that the Lex Friedman uh, talk actually did bring a lot of people to algorithm. I think the bear market's probably shaken a lot of people out at this point. But uh, yeah, those those talks are always fantastic for the the chain.
0: And I, on the same topic, this is a bit off topic, just wanted to highlight as well that there's this professor from Columbia University, his name is Tim Ravgard and he recently started a very nice lecture on the consensus mechanisms in blockchain systems and there's some really interesting work around basically theories that are trying to prove whether Byzantine agreement or BFT like protocols, especially like Algorand, whether this is actually about as good as you can get in regards to building something that optimizes for consistency in partial, in partially synchronous network model. And mm-hmm. it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there, there would be some interesting research in the coming years that might prove that. If you optimize for security and consistency, then you probably wouldn't want your network to be forked, and you probably want to rely on public key encryption, basically. So.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think that the kind of nuances of PowerGran's no forking extends to quite a bit, actually. It's not just the per block. It is even just the chain itself. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean, it's just one that's just the beauties of its, It's what it, Studio calls it, the BA star. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the um, Byzantine agreement. Star. <laughs> <laughs> but just the fact that you can basically have a near star, <laughs> near mm-hmm. asterisk, unlimited kind of node set, but have a effectively fixed committee size out of massive number of participants it means you have a controlled costs for the agreement. Yet you're still talking to random participants out of a massive pool and three different random committees per block. So it's fantastic. So the, the other chain that talk about oh oh you're of course you're doing that because you're only talking to a small committee. Yes, it's a small committee different three times per block potentially out of millions of nodes that's fantastic and i think that's kind of ideal yeah. and then the ones that like oh we'll somehow magically talk to those millions of nodes and come to agreement very quickly it's like you see that they the ones that kind of promise that they have kind of fallen on their face and haven't had, had to push aside some of their original discussions about how it worked and rework it a little bit
0: yeah and then the fact that everything is offline basically up until the point then that... When the decision is made on whether you're proposing or whether you're part of the committee, which is also, I think, was a very interesting. Right.
1: It's not. There's no polling. Right. Like the participants aren't each asking each other, "What do you think? What do you think?" It's basically. It's a push. It's a push model. It's a push model. It's a randomized push, with the receivers able to detect whether or not the participant is correct. It's. This is fantastic. There's there's issues with it that need resolved, but they'll have time. But yeah, I love it.
0: And uh, yeah, so, sorry we're branching off. Yeah, with the my
1: team, if they're watching this, is probably just laughing their heads off because we'll <laughs> like our team meetings. will go off on these side tangents for hours. I'm really bad about it. I apologize.
0: No worries on that. I think this is, these kind of tangents are actually perfect for a podcast setting. Yeah. But to continue on, I think we certainly covered your biography, your sort of introduction to, <laughs> yeah. to, to Algorand and the consensus mechanism. But what's the, if you can cover in short, like what's the story behind the um, transaction lab and yeah. uh, picking the very first offering?
1: Yeah, I was basically software engineer for a large cloud company by day. And at night, Algorand was my hobby, side hobby, plaything, to a certain extent. And at one point, I was helping people quite often about Algorand. And I ended up doing some part-time work for a project to help out with their their infra and met my co-founders through that. And then just through a series of interesting events, we all left that and decided to forge our own bath. And so I was doing doing that at night here and there. And then it's, you know what? I wanna do this full time. Decided to start a new company with those guys and put in my notice of the company and started the Transaction Lab. And then it was just like, okay, what are we gonna do? And I think the original plans for us is to do yet another types of financial thing. Like almost everything is in, in the DeFi. It's all about AMMs and you know, indexes and things like that. And I think even at that time, we're like, it's already feeling like it's going to be a crowded market. And I think they're all just variants of each other. We should do something different and and did not have a naming service at the time. and it seemed perfect for it because I had an unstoppable domain at that time I don't recall ever created an ENS domain, I but I very quickly decided that inso domain was unusable because just to, to pay five to twenty dollars just to update a field and it take 10, 12 minutes. Like this is just ridiculous.
0: And they they run um, on an Ethereum,
1: right? No, they're on Ethereum, and then they moved um, recently to, to Polygon. Yeah, hmm. but that was because I think the on Ethereum is just is kind of unusable to cost so much to do anything with it. And Polygon has lots of issues too. I heard people like talking like a week just to move a coin between chains. It's ridiculous. They build themselves as a layer two for Ethereum, but it's just a completely different chain. It's this kind of, kind of ridiculous, I think. But Algorand, and it's come a long way since actually, it's had to kind of adapt as Algorand has improved the ABM. But the, with the transactions being just a thousand micro algo, 0, 0, 001 algo for a decent amount of operational compute that you can get for that is fantastic. So like with our current, the current solution, the current tech that's being used for NFTs, you can update say four fields per transaction and it's 0.001 algo, which right now is what, three hundredths of a cent and 3.6 seconds guaranteed finality. And the fact that it's stored as global state also means that any contract can access it without even making a contract call. It's just a direct state reference. And then anything on the internet can reference it with just a single HTTP call. So to any algorithm node, you could retrieve the state of an NFT with one call. So it's just all across the board between REST APIs, the way you access state of a contract, and the transaction speed and cost. It's really nice for a naming service. But it's a lot more than just a naming service, we can talk about that later. I see, yeah,
0: and I know that NFD also provides a, a public read-only API, so there's also a, it, a It's very nice...
1: both. It, it's read-write, but it's write in the sense that it's still all on the chain. But, um, w- w- so, w- w- yeah. Yeah, we you call the API, and then if you want to modify your NFD to the API, then all it will do is construct the transactions for you to sign, to submit to a node. To modify the NFD and modify the NFD state via the contracts. But there's no you call an API and then we're like updating some database or whatever, it's all on chain. You know, so the, the entire API is a matter of either giving you cache data that's fed from the chain or providing you transactions to sign to update the chain. And then the, the fact that the chain was updated is how
0: that update is seen by anyone else. Oh, so I guess uh this was a very nice warm-up for the main discussion around the NF- NFD itself. So essentially, just for the listeners out there to set the uh, stage. Essentially, when we when we talk about name services, of course, there's a systems that help us convert an easy readable name to a some physical address on the network, for example, and essentially. We could say that the most used name service in the world is something that powers the internet the dns so it allows us to use human friendly names for mapping i can't imagine anyone ever typing google's ip addresses every time you want to go to google or things like that so it's certainly something that is a foundational feature that enables the capabilities of the of internet which i guess we could say layer zero in this case but then when we speak about the notion of name services within web3 the mm-hmm. definition of course deviates so if you could just set the stage for the main difference when we speak of the name services within the yeah. web3 space and
1: yeah i think yep yeah, go ahead yeah there's a lot of i don't know misconceptions there's a lot of misinformation from a lot of people as well about a lot of what these things are at least today there's all these different services on completely different chains. And basically, there some of these services try to pattern themselves after DNS in terms of uh, like permission layers. So if you know in, in DNS, if you own the Apple.com zone, that com DLD is to delegate the Apple zone to Apple servers. And then if they have kind of subdomains of, that are either zone delegations or resource records off of that zone, the key is that apple.com, in a sense, can has complete total control of all those subdomains. And so it, it, you see some naming services, in NS, like Ines has the notion of subdomains. But the parent, in a sense, at any point in time, can basically completely rug the children. And it's also a rental model. So it's if you have a subdomain in an ENS, your parent can expire, get taken over by someone else who rents it, and then basically render your subdomain inoperable, and you have no control over it. So it, it, it's like you have these things that they say to kind of Web3 about you owning your data, but here's a case where you don't own your data. And so interesting that there's different naming services with different models that where they're trying to basically like elicit DNS and put it on the blockchain. And I think like we talk about Web3, it's just more about the user owning, you owning your data. It's not Facebook owning your data or Google owning your data, Whether it's you own your data, and then you basically define what that data is and what you do or don't store there. And you could even have different identities, right? And so at least for NFTs, that's the philosophy that you have user controlled and owned data that there is a discovery mechanism for the name. But then even with segments, we're calling them segments, not subdomains, that it's still always wholly owned by that account holder, that owner. And whatever data you put there, whatever you choose to put there, you control and it's all probably So It doesn't necessarily mean the data you put there might not be a link to something that is privacy preserving. So you could still potentially have, say, attestations with other services that provided, like KYC or something like that, that could be proven independently, but in a secure way that you could link to your NFT, for example. But there's also times where you might want to have public information exposed in your NFT. And there's times where that's really useful, like for like, NFT like project creators and things. Because you might want to say, yes, this is my NFT wallet. I'm out of the algo, or this is this is my NFT, these are my creations because I'm this artist. And here's all this public information. So that I'm actually the real creator of these things. So I think providing that on chain discoverability and user controlled ownership is the key. And then you can put all kinds of things into it that open it up to the entire chain and even outside the chain, because the chain is accessible just via the internet by anything or anyone. I think that's where it gets interesting. So it's, it's a lot more than just a name to an address or an address to a name, like that gives you the discovery, discoverability, both directions. So the name could be like, I want to send, I want to find information about this name or send something to this name. The address is more, there's activity on chain and I can use the activity on chain to tie that back to some type of identity. And then what is defined with that identity is still controlled by that identity. And that could be anonymous, it could, it could be like, I could create an NFT that has just a name and I put no public information in it at all on purpose. But still have a lot of great use and utility for that. Like maybe it references one of my Twitter alts, right? That I'm still not that's not docs, but there could still be lots of use and utility there. And so I think that's really interesting that there's some models where the, the assumption is that you must have this fixed guaranteed identity tied back to KYC information. And I think the user should always be in complete control of that. And I should be able to have a like an NFD that's Public, if I want to make it public, and very visible with full KYC. And there's ways of validating that, either securely or not, depending because you might want to be public. You might want it to be a secure attestation that you can that someone could say, "Is this person KYC'd? I can check this. Yes or KYC, but I don't really know their information." So you'll be able to do that. But I might also want to have an AFD where. I have no identifying information, but I'm still able to participate in the ecosystem for reverse lookups. Like, so maybe I'm secretly a massive NFT whale, and you might see my purchases of glass half full. Dot algo, whatever. And but the thing is, that can in some ways can be its own kind of. I don't know, a kind of social game in the sense you could see Glass Half Full. has bought all these entities, and like, who is this person? There might be no information in that other than the name, but it could still be really useful if I wanted to send Algo to my Glass Half Full. I could send it, or I could see that hey, I'm on the leaderboard, but no one would know who it was. But it's still, it's still cool to be able to bring and surface that sort of user-controlled identity mm-hmm. as public or not. As someone wants, and still have it just all magically work. I love it. I don't know. Like I said, I'll go on a really weird tangents. I'm sorry.
0: This is this is great. Like if if time, if there's any time constraints on your site and just let me know. But so far, I think we are pretty well in regards to the defining the introduction for for the NFD. And I suppose since this was also one of the first name services in the Algorand ecosystem, a good scenario that it certainly covered out of the box, as you mentioned, I just wanted to highlight this as, as well, is a common case when in the blockchain ecosystem you have multiple participants, they would like to exchange certain assets, they would like to exchange certain tokens and etc. And Usually, the critique for ecosystems that don't contain any name services is the fact that there is just a very long string, which is your public key or public address. You've got to memorize it somehow, or it's just something that is, uh, well, certainly not convenient to share every no, time. Yeah. And like I F- can imagine,
1: characters is a, lot yeah, to, is-, uh, is a lot to type in. It's a lot space.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I suppose one of the main cases for that was also the fact that NFD domains also cooperates a lot with different wallet services and other DeFi systems in the Algorand systems in order to provide them access to essentially do the lookups for attached NFD aliases. In other words, a user could essentially eliminate this issue and the need to memorize this large public keys right you can go on NFD domains you can get something from the marketplace or you can mint an entirely new one if there's no such NFD domain yet and attach your wallet to it and as Patrick just outlined essentially it's really up to you whether you want to make that alias to be mapped to a specific wallet or you you don't have to do that if you don't want to but if you want to have a utility and to use it for payments or etc this is also one of the cases that NFD domains are very helpful for. But I guess to to go on a little bit in regards to I, th- I think you also provided a, a set of key features as well already. Yeah so, there,
1: there's some I should probably cover in more depth, but yeah I kind of went all over the place.
0: <laughs> but I guess what would also be really interesting to hear about and especially for folks listening to this is some of the more technical aspects in regards to the architecture, and of course, we don't need to cover every single component in the system, but would be really nice to cover the components that rely directly on some of the L1 capabilities of Algorand. So for example, how smart contracts are used in this particular case, right? With every mint, I believe there is a dedicated instance for a, the bundle of stateful and stateless contracts being deployed. And basically yeah, architecture specific to components that rely directly on the algorithmic ecosystem and this will lead us to also a follow-up question on which i think is at this point already very well covered by yourself but you know a question on why was Algorand chosen as a chain to power the platform but yeah if you could just briefly cover on that and uh...
1: yeah uh, so loosely and some of this stuff will change over time as i think with box storage coming soon then it will probably transition some aspects of design to use boxes where appropriate. But right now, there's the discovery mechanism, the on-chain discovery mechanism for forward lookups name to address and for reverse lookups address to one or more names. And that is via logic signature accounts. So there's basically specially constructed teal bytecode where the name and or address is composed into that and the resulting hash of that teal is what makes up a logics account in Algorand. So that hashed code gives you a unique Algorand account address and that account is opted into a an FD registry contract. And the local state of that LogicSeq account contains a reference to the application ID of the NFD. So for a given name, there's a logic sigs. So I look up Patrick.algo, composed into this bytecode. So you can say there's even, I've got the code there to do this all on chain, take this bytecode, replace these eight bytes, add these bytes at the end, hash it, look up the local state of the registry contract, get the application ID. The application ID is the NFD ID for that NFD. And so each D, like pattern to Algo, is a distinct new contract instance. Like normally, a lot, of, a lot of the DeFi sort of things work where there's a contract and there's like a local state. This is a case where every NFD is a completely new contract instance. And the benefit of that is the state like that once you have the application id of say pattern.algo that will never change that's pattern.algo is that id so you can just read its global state and that's all of the state of pattern.algo and so the benefit of having distinct application it's for one is prior to boxes is the only way to get a decent amount of storage by having a distinct um, application per nfd and by asking for the maximum number of keys, which you have to ask for upfront, then you get eight eight kilobytes of storage max. So 64 keys, 128 bytes each key is the global state yeah. for a, a contract. And then the, another benefit of it being its own contract is starting with AVM one TL ATL5, then each contract also has an associated account so it has there's a contract account that will that is what we call the nfd's vault and so that will be exposed in the future where each nfd is also its own bank in a sense so you'll be able to deposit assets into your nfd And technically, you'd be able to sell the NFT with all its assets. I see. So Mm -hmm. you'd be able to load up your NFT and put thousands of NFTs or even coin into its vault, and you wouldn't have to opt in. Like it it would also get away. It would also remove the opt-in requirements. So you'd be able to kind of airdrop to into your vault without having to do any opt-in procedures. Like it would auto opt in to you sending to it. And there'd be restrictions about you could have your vault locked or unlocked. If it's a locked vault, only you can send to it. If it's unlocked, you could allow certain participants to kind of airdrop you. They would have to cover the minimum balance requirements when they up it in. So it's like someone couldn't yeah. like spam you and make it so that your minimum balance requirement was really high. Like mm-hmm. they would have to pay for that. Then you'd be able to trans- you'd be able to sell that NFT, the with all of its assets. And then there's other kind of cool things about that uh, vault account. The NFT also mints its own NFT, so the NFT creates an Arc19 NFT, where the creator is that that vault. So if you go to the gallery view of your NFT and say creations, if you've never created an NFT in your life, it'll show there's a creation, and the creation will be the, the NFT's NFT because gallery shows all related accounts to your NFT. All the related accounts are the owner, the NFT's a vault and then any linked accounts that you have. So it'll automatically show its own creation as one of the creations for the NFT. And then that NFT, it creates as you update your NFT, like you change your avatar or you change metadata, like you put your name or your email address, Twitter, mm-hmm. bio, whatever, then the met- that metadata, the same as you'd get if you hit our API, is Pinned to IPFS, and the NFT is updated with that metadata. And so then the NFT is an ARC-19 NFT, so that you will then see your NFD as a collectible in like your Para wallet or any other wallet. I and see. So
0: it's Im- Im- embedded because you said it's uh, ARC-19, right? So the metadata is then just parsed directly from that NFT in, in, in most Yeah, the, the, meta,
1: the, yeah, the metadata scores. is all on IPFS. And then the image link within that metadata, then it is the image link of the IPFS yeah. avatar or that you set. And the reason for that NFT, and then that NFT is completely owned and controlled by the NFT. So it's actually frozen into the buyer's account. And the act of you selling your NFT, the NFT moves with it into the new buyer's account. So, the, the intent of that is with contract state, it's not visible. If if I'm if I have some some global state of some contract somewhere that happens to reference my account, you don't see that. Like I, I wanted someone to be able to go into the marketplace or their wallet. And see I own this thing. Right. If I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy this identity. I want to see that I actually own it outside of just this website. Right. And so by having that NFT that is also dynamic, then I can see that I own this thing. It becomes more tangible to have that. It took a lot of extra work to have that. But I think there's something to be said about being able to go into your wallet and see that you actually own this thing and if it was just contract state, you wouldn't see that. And then there's even side benefits where Algo explorer they'll be adding additional NFT support soon. Like you can already look up an NFT by its name and go to its address and things like that in Algo Explorer, They'll be doing reverse address. So like the whole transactions, as you walk the blocks, you'll see the NFT names for all transactions
0: soon. Oh, wow, okay.
1: But um, one kind of fun benefit, before they added NFT support formally, they indirectly already support NFTs without doing it, without aware, being aware, because the NFT asset name is the NFT. Mm-hmm. So if you typed patrick.algo, you would go to its NFT.
0: And you could see every can, every transaction associated, with it? In, in yeah, the, and then you'd the see NFT other transactions, then, yeah. you'd
1: see, oh, where that got created, oh, it got created by this account, you'd follow that. So you'd be able to work your way back up the spider web via that NFT. And you'd be able to see when that NFT is moves from account to account, you'll even be able to see ownership transfers. So it just checked a lot of boxes and is ended up being really useful. And then also, and this is more lower-level algorithm sort of stuff. One really useful thing about that NFT also is that in teal, it's very easy and very cheap to check an asset balance, right? So if I want to say, does this sender say someone's calling my contract? I could say, does that sender have asset X? Right. And you can use that as like a permissions model for one. So it could be like, does this sender have this one permissions key, which is an ASA? And if if so, oh, then I'll give them the permissions or I'll let them make this contract call you can use the NFD's NFT as a permission key, right? So instead of having to like do all these weird re- re- arm chain resolving, which you can do, you could reconstruct the logic SIG in Teal and look it up and look to the logic to local state. But because of foreign arrays, you'd have to already know the answer that question and pass those as foreign references. But what you can do is if you already know the asset ID of the nfd and verified that you could pass the asset id um, or have that coded in of an nfd and use that as permissions so you could basically say i want to have an allow list of nfds that can send to me so you could construct the allow see, list by just having a list of asset ids because then you can check to see does the sender hold this asset if they are they're the owner of that nfd so you could use the asset ID as a permissions token for allow listing NFDs without having to do any kind of on-chain lookups and still guarantee because that that NF, that asset can only be, it's frozen, it's default frozen with clawback, the clawback is to the NFD itself. The only place that token can be is either in the owner's account or inside the NFD's own vault. You could basically know either the NFT itself is calling you, literally, or the owner of that NFT is calling you if they held that asset. And so like, there's all these little things that end up a ripple effect of of benefits. But to have all those pieces is a lot of work. But yeah, I think between the NFT, the NFT, the account, the fact that you have the global state, and and then the lookups, that's most of the architecture. Uh, the, the fact that we have to buy up so much storage up front does make the NFDs very expensive as far as the minimum balance requirement. So it, It's almost like five algo hard carry cost just to exist. It's uh, so like when you buy the NFD, you'll see like that there's a couple of transactions in the transaction. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty large transaction group. Yeah. So it's like eight transactions plus five inner inter-transactions for the mint, it's like their mm-hmm. transactions or something. and One of the transactions is an independent transaction that's a five-algo payout. And what you're really doing is you're paying to like this admin account that then pays the MBR requirements of the logic SIG and the NFT. And the logic SIG is one algo for each because I bought up all 16 local state keys for those. And then for the NFT, it's all 64 byte keys. So it ends up being just under five algo raw carry cost and then boxes if i transition and do a hybrid approach of state plus boxes then maybe i can knock off maybe three algo so we'll see.
0: I'm very curious to see how you guys are going to also apply box storage once it's available. I actually thought it's something that they announced along with the state proofs recently. And this is already. So box
1: storage already. is not out yet. It's in hmm. you, it's in the, a branch. You can download it and develop against it locally. But it's not been pushed out oh, I see, to been yet. I think they definitely want to pound their chests about it at Decipher. I think one way or another, they'll be talking about boxes at Decipher a lot. And I would think bare minimum, it's probably at least in Bayonet. But uh, yeah, it, there, there's a lot of kind of ripple effects. There's pros and cons to, to boxes versus global state. The nice thing about boxes is that it's pay-as-you-go, which I think is a much better model than mm-hmm. these, because then it's like you, if you want to store lots and lots of data, well, then, you, then the user yeah, pays pay it for it as they want to yeah. store it. Right? Whereas right now, we have to basically... Get that a bunch of that cost up front, and if you don't really use it, and because you have you can't ever like for when you ask for global state keys, you have to ask for most you'll ever use, like up front, and and you can never change it. But uh, I think one nice thing, also, about that's cool about the NFDs also being distinct contract instances, it lets it gives the user complete control, which I like that idea. It just the non-vulnerable, it, it checks the law of boxes in the sense that because it's a distinct contract, the contracts are upgradable because we are and have added features, and we'll be adding some significant features very soon, actually. But to do that, the NFT contract gets upgraded. However, if users are really like, I don't like this, right, you can go into your NFT, go to edit, There's contract, smart like contract version. It will show you the current version of the contract. And then there's a radio button there. You can lock your contract. So on a per NFD basis, the owner can lock it.
0: Interesting. And
1: it's not upgradable. And the thing that was cool, it's not like this is like the contract for everything. It's just that NFD.
0: So 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 does it mean that every upgrade so the contracts essentially would still require an approval from the owner, essentially. If they locked it. If, if they locked it. Okay, I see. I right. see.
1: So it really comes more because, like, I've known for some time. Like, there's things, even as I developed it, there was new features that came out for I, that the support for intertransactions. So before we went live, I'm like, okay, this fixed. Like right now, I, it was like a three-stage claim process because it had a mint. You had to mint the contract and you couldn't know what, because in order to fund the vault, you had to know what the vault account was. But you couldn't know what the vault account was until the application itself was actually created. So you had to create the NFD, uh, submit that transaction. Then, okay, what application ID is it? Okay, now I can submit and do this. As a part of a TL5, I think, maybe TL6, and you had intertransactions transactions and the ability to create an application in one transaction as a part of a group and then later in that same group reference what the created application id was fund that application via another contract so another they call this trampolining so a second contract then it has to send funds to the account that was just created in a transaction then it can make intertransaction calls to that contract. And before we went mainnet, before we went to live, I like had to redo the whole minting process to support intertransactions and make it so it was just a big transaction group to mint and then another one to claim, which is really just like taking ownership of the NFT and stuff. I knew that like things like box storage would come in as well. And I knew there's features that we're going to release, like the vault support and segment support that are upgrades. So in a sense, it's like, I I want this to be a a, a service that provides utility that gets better over time. And it's not this static thing where it's like, I create contracts, I'm done with it, and then they just stagnate, die. I I want this to be a growing, useful utility, but still provide the user the control. They can say, look, I Mm -hmm. looked at your contracts, I'm okay with it, but I don't want you to ever change it again, lock it. Now, it's quite possible that certain functionality in the future won't work for them, but that's still their choice. And I, li- I like the flexibility there yeah. where it's like where we can continue to provide new features and new functionality that improves product- the platform and utility, which boosts the value for everyone, but also gives the ability for people to have that individual control and say, nope, I want to lock it. And then if it's locked, nothing yeah. we can do
0: I think it's a very balanced sweet spot in between just mutable or immutable contracts. It's having mm-hmm. this, this ability to upgrade, but at the same time, giving the control, whether you want to lock it and then stay there forever on the specific version. And it, then it's up- and even
1: if they lock it. So like right now there's some debate, like if users are asking, oh, and you add segments, will you just push that out. Mm-hmm. Like I, I could, but one part of me is kind of uncomfortable with that. I want users to have to go to there and explicitly upgrade their contract, but I, just, I think what we'll probably do is that'll probably still be what they have to do, but we'll have to make sure our interface looks to see what version of the, of the contract their NFT is on and tailors the interface to that I a see. little bit. Because it'll be like when we add segments, which will be like subdomains in a sense, but not. So like a segment. So if I own Bennett.algo, for example, as a root, then by default, that is that root will be, is locked. And then if I wanted to, then I, as the owner, can mint a segment off of that, but only I can. So I could then mint patrick.bennett.algo off of bennett.algo. And it's something to change. But right now, the thinking is it would be five algo to cover that carry cost plus three dollars. So it would be three dollars plus five algo for me to mint patrick.bennett.algo. Now, once patrick.bennett.algo exists, it is completely standalone completely self-sovereign it has like Binada algo has a zero control over it and so that could then be resold or repurposed however so if there was an organization that wanted to control their root then they would never unlock it they would leave it locked and then it comes down to just key control which which is a lot all crypto usually is key control and that could be multi-sig there's lots of things ways of doing that they could do rekeying tricks but they could then control those, and they could even what's cool is because ownership and linkage is independent. So you could have custodial accounts for your organization, mint those, keep your NFD locked, control and own all those NFDs, but have independent accounts for your users, for keys with keys that they control that get that they link into the NFD. So you only one time have the two party transaction sign. And then now that NFD could still be owned by the organization or application or service, yet be associated with activity of the user's controlled account. I see. So that would be a lock scenario. You could Mm -hmm. also say I own Ben.algo. I could unlock Ben.algo. And if I unlock it, then I set a price, a market price. I can say, anyone can mint off ben. algo for X dollars. And then anyone could go and say, oh, I wanna create john.bennett or Patrick.bennett.algo. And I go, okay, they said the price is $5. So five algo plus $5, buy. And then now they own it and they have complete total ownership and control of it. Again, the parent has no rights. The only rights you have on segmentation is the minting I see. that's it mm-hmm. so it's, it's either locked and only you can mint or it's unlocked and anyone can mint but then once created then it's completely self-sovereign completely standalone and controlled by the keys and can be transferred how it depends how you want to do it but the fact that ownership and linkage is ownership ownership can be independent from what accounts are linked also opens up lots of possibilities so now you could have a custodial solution where you own the nfds but the visibility on chain is another account. So activity for that user controlled account could be, could show up as that 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 segment, but the owner is a different account. You are following? Yeah, yeah, I see.
0: I mean, I feel like you're also uh, sort of touching some of the uh, features for the future roadmap that- uh, So uh, se- segments, segments on, are in
1: beta like, mm-hmm. right now, basically with a, a significant partner who's will be probably starting testing of that I think next week awesome. so you'll if people look around and net and test that, you'll probably start seeing you'll see if you go to test net, you'll see some segments there now it's just that the UI is not by just getting started being okay. started so the contracts are there the USD pricing is there I might switch to a different Oracle for the pricing right now it's just a, an Oracle I just threw together myself but it's mostly it's about getting price data on chain for the contract to reference. And so I could really reference any Oracle and I really wouldn't care. So segments are next. And then vaults will presumably be after that. And vaults are much like the contract wise is actually very simple. It's more involved on the UI because with vaults, it's really almost more like our interface has to have a mini wallet interface because now you're going to have to see assets in your vault account and be able to like do sends from your vault. So it's we almost need a full wallet interface. Nice. And ideally, we talk to the wallet providers and say, hey, support vaults. <laughs> but I just know that hopefully will happen, but that takes time. So bare minimum, we have to support it first. And then so that's just a much larger UI uplift. But uh, yeah, segments first, vaults next. And then there's other cool stuff that may happen in between. But uh, yeah, so if users have the contracts locked, then they'll have to unlock their contract and then there'll be a choice to upgrade so they can just they can force the upgrade themselves Um, so yeah i think it's cool so i think there's a good chance what will happen is we might not just say force the upgrade and what will happen is if they want to try to mint off their name it will just say hey you can't you have to upgrade your contract first before you can create a segment and then i don't think if someone wants to unlock their segment and have people mint off it? Then it'll be very obvious. They'll want to do that upgrade. And then if people want to mint set off their own segment, it'd be the same thing. Then they'll be told they need to upgrade and upgrade that time. But it's probably no reason to like literally touch every single NFT and upgrade it on the chance they might want to segment. I, I'll probably err on the side of them upgrading. It just feels better because I don't. I don't think I'd want to push out updates unless there was like a like a vulnerability or something, or unless there was something where Everything would break unless they're mm-hmm. on version, because it's like a significant change. Like I think the transition to boxes will be interesting, because I'll have to have a transition process. If the data moves from state to boxes, it's a very, very different. But there, are, like I said, there, there are cons. The same, this is a technical audience. I think the fact that if you put the metadata of user-defined fields. Like right now, on a contract, I could reference an NFT and say, what's their Twitter Twitter handle? And just read it directly from state and make use of that. That's really handy and nice. With boxes, the only way you'd be able to get that data is to make a contract call. Because boxes will be completely opaque to outside contracts. Only the contract that owns the box can read it and see it. So the only way you'll be able to get that data is you have to make you literally have to make an inner a contract to contract call the contract what we were doing make an inner transaction to the NFTs app ID and say hey give me the value of this property.
0: So it will basically introduce an extra hop in this case for yeah like an extra extra
1: hop and the fact that because right now with the foreign references until they add their simulation API which they're talking about you would have to know transitively everything that's going to be referenced by every call. So if you called contract A and then contract A wanted to read a property in a box of contract B, you would have had you would have you'll have to pass that box reference in a call to contract A. I see. Like in the outer transaction, you have to know everything that's going to be touched transitively across all calls, all assets, all applications, all accounts, all boxes. And you can't access, and you can't touch more than eight of those combined. I see. So it's all about limiting, like, in a sense, the amount of compute and I.O. per transaction. So it all makes sense, and it's part of why it's able to stay so efficient. But it just it definitely makes composability more interesting. Whereas if it's global state, they can just read the state directly. So it's, it's, it's not that clear cut.
0: Maybe it could be something like a basic model versus, but yeah, once again, linking to the fact that it's Probably going to be needed and useful only for the folks who actually want to bundle a bunch of extra information there that can't yeah. just fit into the global state. So yeah, maybe it's like the transition itself maybe is also could be invoked or initiated by the user. If you really want, please go ahead. You can switch to this new new mode that will essentially give you more data, but you gotta pay extra. And it's- well,
1: I talked it'll be interesting because segments, I think, will be pretty cheap. And at at significant scale, even three dollars is it's expensive. But like for normal individual things, it's quite cheap. But uh, there's one project to talk to that it could be pretty pretty cool. I think that the thought is potentially using these segments as they could be used as uh, they could be used as profiles Hmm. for services. They could use this as service specific profiles. So now you could actually have preferences for that service stored with an NFD specific to that service for that account, for that user. And it's automatically portable preferences, in a sense, across all your devices automatically, but all on-chain. It's not my using the Firefox sync service or the Chrome sync or this, whatever, to, to sync your cookies or this, whatever. It's like, there's none of that. It's uh, It would just be potentially a link to IPFS that service pins and then updates in your NFD or potentially just stores right in the NFD. If it's not, if it's sensitive information, the service could store it in IPFS, link the IPFS content ID in the NFT, and then it could be encrypted um, with something shared between the user and the server. Mm-hmm. Or if it's okay to be public, like it's, oh, I, I want dark mode or something like that. I don't think anyone's going to care that you'd like dark mode. So you could have just some JSON just put right in the metadata of your NFT that says, these are my UI preferences. And then just the act of you connecting with an account at all, it can. I connected this account, oh, it's linked to this NFD, which is a segment of my service. I'll pull its preferences from that. And so just the act of you connecting your wallet, you automatically get all your preferences and settings specific to that service via the service-specific NFD.
0: Yeah, that that's, and, that sounds like a very suitable use case for this, actually. Yeah.
1: yeah, and then you could even use that as a a model for subscriptions. If you had subscription based services, now you could use that as kind of like the getting past the bouncer at the door. And then in a sense, the vault could also act as a, a mechanism for payout of usage tokens for the service or something. So I think there's some pretty cool stuff there. I see. A lot of there's a lot of alpha in there for a lot of different things. I
0: think, to like for the most of the folks who were already familiar with NFD, I think you certainly did expand the horizon in regards to the set of features that are available yeah. and set of features that are about to be planned. But just uh,
1: one thing, I, uh, we're going on really long. Sure. One thing I do want to touch on that I would like to see more use of, and it's not quite, I would expect to be a lot more prevalent. It's not there quite yet, is NFT projects. Really, like uh, tons of them, all have NFTs, but a lot of them haven't put anything into them. Fill it out. Put an avatar that's one of their at your actual NFTs, preferably a verified, because you know we do will verify you actually own the NFT. Pick one out that they like. Keep it. Use that as their avatar. Set a banner. V- verify, verify your Twitter, because mm. people know your Twitter account. If This Twitter artist, this or project. They know your Twitter. Verify that. Verify those socials, and the NFT link all the creator accounts. And then that way, the marketplaces that support NFT, which is a lot of them, and more are coming with very good NFT support. Like you go to NFT Explorer, if that's linked, you're not going to see just an address, just a single address for the creator of the NFT. You'll see the NFT. And where that's really important is because all these different marketplaces or have their own, they're maintaining their own databases of collections and creators. And so they'll be like, oh, this wallet is guana, this wallet is state poofs, and they'll have like name, this is a verified thing, but they're maintaining all that. Then the issue is they don't, they're not, they can't always all keep track, or keep yeah. consistent. Yeah, exactly. And so I should be able to go and see an NFT that gets listed on marketplace and they go, oh, that's a Mingo or whatever. And it could be a fraud. And if you're just showing the creator address, you don't know, right? Unless that marketplace has already done the verification. If instead I see Gwanda algo and I can, as the creator, I know that though that those creator wallets were linked to that NFT I can go to the NFT and then see all the additional social trusts in a sense through verifications have been added to it to so I can get the additional assurances that that's the actual creator and then once I know that and go oh well, I see Guanda Algo as the creator of any of these NFTs I know it's not a fraud mm-hmm. not a forgery
0: I can agree more with this case, and I'm actually guilty myself in regards to our uh, NFD dom- domain for the World. We certainly need to uh, fill that. But uh, yeah, like one particular case we would be also adding will bundle all of our creator wallets, add this to the metadata for the NFD domain and uh, add like a little verifier link to the Explorer page so that the people holding the Elgaworld's expertise can quickly verify whether it's a legit one or not legit one. Itself. And
1: then projects that use discord for verification yeah a fair number if you you can because if someone verifies their discord id on their nfd then you can automatically know what nfds someone using your discord has and verify all their assets and give them roles based on the NFTs of yours they own without them having to sign any transactions paste an address or anything because you can look up their discord id their snowflake ID. So your bot will already know who it's talking to and be able to. So you're basically getting kind of like single sign-on without them actually having to sign on. They already signed on into Discord. I see. But you're also being able to see the NFDs that they've chosen to the link to that Discord handle. So like for me, patrick.algo is my NFT wallet. So for any NFT stuff, I just patrick.algo And so I have no problems at all that being public. I want to be public. but the nice thing is that the Discords that support that. Then I can just say hi, <laughs> and I'm just automatically connected. I had to say verify and type patreon algo. Like it varies on how some of the different Discord bots handle it, but technically I can literally just like emoji click the bot, and that's it. And they can just the fact that I t- talked about it all. They can see what ID I have, and look up that ID in the NFTs and find. The, my nfd and then all Mac can know all the related accounts that i've linked and search for their assets in it and give me permissions. to discord to are that. there
0: any prominent bot providers who already provide this capability yeah or?
1: uh so if you go to our integration list we got 50 plus integrations mm-hmm. at least two is at least two discord bots that provide this functionality awesome i think one of them is such that it's like a global database i think he maintains a sort so it's if you verify with any of the Discords that his bot is on, then those Discord admins register like, hey, these are my career wallets for my things and these are the roles I want. And then once you verify once on any of his his sites or any of the sites that use him, then you're automatically verified across all of them. So I think once you go to a different Discord, you'll already have the roles because he monitors the NFTs across those linked wallets. I don't know if he necessarily follows, if you sell, like, technically, if you sell your NFD, the act of selling your NFD wipes all metadata. I see. Services should, like, track, okay, for this given NFD, like, who is the owner? And if it's not the same owner anymore, I shouldn't really pay, I shouldn't, I should uh, ignore the prior checks, in a sense.
0: I see. I'll certainly make sure to also reference some of those uh, partner integrations from NFD website. On the also Malgo. I think there is some direct references there as well. But it's it's great to see that there's already use cases to that, and there are some about providers who utilize this. And uh... yeah,
1: there's quite a few different interesting integrations. And I think yeah, if you go to our docs, there's like an integrations link that mm-hmm. lists all of them, and I think we have the same integrations listed as integrations channel on our Discord. That the same for ones. the
0: listeners out there, all of this information and the links would be provided in this description after the episode. But Patrick, to proceed, and I would love to go on any particular topic in detail to this extent, but I think for the sake of time, and yeah. we're going over time a bit, but there's still one final question I just wanted to clarify in regards to the NFD, and then we will move on to the final question for the episode. But that particular question, and I will generalize it for the sake of time. So initially I wanted to ask on examples of um, the most notable challenges while implementing the platform, but you could still mention it if you want, but paraphrase it. I'd say if you look at the entire development journey so far in regards to the NFD as a platform, we've been mostly talking about the things that were leveraged from the L1 on Algorand, such as smart contracts, there was stateful, stateless, and some plans for the future roadmap as well. But if you look at the entire sort of implementation journey taking into the account, of course, not just the contracts, but then the infrastructure work for this, the front end client work, then I'm sure there's some, there's a lot of back-end work associated to also work in tandem with the smart contracts and to collaborate with Algorand L- Sheet. If you are to were to look on all of those different aspects of the platform, what would you say was the area that caused the most amount of challenges? And I'm asking this just because, you know, in often cases, when, when you think that I would imagine that you would say it's smart contracts, but you know, often there's often cases when big platforms like this, you find some very interesting bottlenecks or you find some very interesting challenges in something that uh, you least expected uh, the uh, sort of issues to occur. But uh, just curious to hear your take on this then.
1: All of the above. It's to have, to have a service that have, I think our app is one of the, the best out there it performed extremely well. It worked extremely well on, on mobile devices. It, the, it Every different resolution, it scales and adjusts very well. Our resolutions, my UI guys have done an amazing job there. That's a lot of work. So to have a performant app that works across mobile and desktop, across many wallets, that is... It's kind of interesting. It's an interesting challenge that a lot of traditional sort of websites, like you, you log in and you mm-hmm. have like session management. That we have no login. There's no login. There's no session management. It's like completely public. Like the API that we have is the API our UI uses. So the mechanisms for gating, like state transitions, in this mm-hmm. sense, all the chain. So it's just a very different kind of model in the sense where if you say, I want to change this NFT, and then the UI, it's all local, you're changing fields, and then you say update. Then that just asks our API, like, hey, we have a really nice API. It's useful. Don't have to use it. They can make direct contract calls, but you can just do an HTTP put or an HTTP patch. So if you do a put, then if I fetched an NFT, here's a JSON of the internal user defined verified properties i can do a put and say here's the user defined properties and you could have changed you could have added five fields changed two deleted one and you just do a put with those user defined properties and you get back a transaction group for you to sign and submit so what happens is that the api just returns back transactions we pop it to whatever wallet you're using you sign and submit that and then the back end is completely oblivious. The back end doesn't know that you signed or submitted anything. Right? Mm-hmm. You just hear some transactions and they, they could sign them, or someone could have gone to a goal command line and done a goal app call and called the contract themselves from their own node. The key is that the changes happen on the chain. So we have a back end block watcher. That watches every block or on chain and it keeps track of where it leaves off. If it gets shut down, there's deploys or whatever mm-hmm. or it goes wrong, and it'll always start where it left off. And it reads every transaction and goes, oh, here's here an NFD was created. Uh, I'll I'll start watching that one. Oh, here an NFD was called to update prop metadata. Okay. Mm-hmm. What got changed? And so the only way it, the platform or backend for our caches and all that kind of things knows that anything changed is because the blockchain changed, however it changed. So it's a very kind of different model. It's not like traditional web apps. Yeah. Where you're talking to a back-end service and then it writes to a database. And then there's different caches and event buses and stuff like that. And in this case, the database in a sense, it's blockchain. Now we have a database that feeds our public API, because it, it's people need millisecond access to fetch things if they want to use the API. That's fed from different database, but that database only ever gets updated because the blockchain got updated. So it's kind of a very different sort of model. And then the normal sort of things that you would use for DOS attacks and DOS interventions and that sort of stuff, you don't really have. In a sense, you're, it becomes the chain. Yeah. So it's yeah. I don't care if I have a bunch of transactions that you don't submit. If you want to change something, you submit. You change the chain, and the chain will get you. Now I could then have like rate limits and things for my API, and I can try to prevent things that way. But in terms of normal sort of restrictions, it is it, it, those restrictions are into becoming things on the chain. So it's a matter of pushing. Oh, I want to be able to send a message to this user or whatever. In some ways to do that ends up just being a contract call that we see, and you use the chain as that discovery mechanism, and so that's a different model. But then it's just, in general, having, when you have a kind of an infra level, a kind of key infrastructure service that lots of different things want to use in different ways, then that also requires a much more robust infrastructure to be able to perform well. So then you have a global CDN and you have very efficient infrastructure services. Because whereas like for wallet providers, it's like I'd like them to use the on chain. If you look at our integration docs and be like, hey, for City algo, just read it from on chain, please. <laughs> but you know, a lot of times for doing reverse lookups and all that kind of things, like hitting an Algorand node to do that would be very painful. So, you know, I think for doing reverse lookups, just hit our API, right? And it'll be very fast. But at the same time for doing like financial sends, you can trust but verify. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's like one of those things where it's use the API but also do it on chain or just do it all on chain. Because at least for that stuff, on-chain is actually still quite efficient, particularly if you already know the application ID and like you had that stored like, oh, this is the application ID I transact with. You could always fetch like its current state with one call to any Algorand node, yeah. and any Algorand node would always be the current state.
0: And there's a bunch of nodes, including ones that are free and public at the moment. And uh...
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, you've our Explorer, Stake, Algo node, nodes kind of come out of nowhere and is doing really well that they, they run, they do a really good job of their nodes. So it's great to have competition in that area. Yeah. It's good for all of us, really. But yeah, I mean, does I always say the contracts were a challenge early on. Because there's, it's just the growing pains of. I was very familiar with Algorand; like, I understood, I'd followed Teal, and I understood all this stuff at work. But then to actually start to like actually write the contracts, it's very different.
0: And, and then and the so fact that is... this constantly changes, like just over yeah. the past year, right? There's been four oh, teal yeah. versions. Everything that is Huge. like it gets improved, exactly. but then there's things that could be a major you know, like a breaking yeah. change. If you rely on stateless contracts, then some teal upgrades in the version could also change the output hash of the yeah. contract. And there's just a lot of things you get. Well,
1: to or it's even simple things like it's like, hey, here's this feature that I that will totally change my design. And it's, do you wait for it? <laughs> or do you just try to account for it and plan for it? And then there's there's the nuances of agreeable contracts. Um, yeah. And I see both sides to it. And there's a lot of nuance to it, to be honest. I think people, there's people who will be like really against upgradable contracts, but at the same time, they'll use a contract to begin with, and they never read the code. So it's so it's a way of saying, you're saying you don't trust the upgraded, but you just implicitly trust what you're calling to begin with. Like, how do you know there isn't a problem with what you're initially calling? There's always going to be there's always going to be levels of trust.
0: Yeah, sometimes um, ideologies are prevailing over pragmatism when it comes to smart contracts.
1: <laughs> but I, I do like the approach that kind of ended up with. In some cases, it ended up being happy accidents. Um, but it is, I, I do the fact that it is the user's choice to be able to lock that. Um, In many cases, because of these upcoming features, I hope they don't, but if they do, that's fine. They'll sell the ability to unlock it and manually upgrade and if the time comes. But one part of me once is excited about all the cool stuff we have coming, but another part of me is almost really excited to be like, okay, this thing is perfect. I can't, can't, nothing else can happen with this, but I don't, I don't know. We'll see. I know that there's things like uh, additional things that could happen is right now When you verify a field, there's there's off-chain processes, verify email, that off-chain process are involved. We're acting as kind of the trust agent in that verification process. So in the future, what I would love to see are good, centralized oracles Hmm. that support off-chain services in a decentralized way. So it's, okay, here's this node software. Like I could even write, here's a verification for doing Twitter or email or whatever. And had that be as an add-on to a chain link type of service. And someone could do the verification through that. And then if one of those nodes then is chosen and is not slash and all that, then I could allow the contracts to have that specific Oracle contract update the verified verified field. I see. So in the future. It'd be like, okay, now for Twitter verification, that's now handled by this Oracle. And then that would be just I'd love to see those sort of things come off our plate. It's I don't want those, I don't want those touch points to be on us I prefer those touch points to be all on chain, but they have to be, it has to be possible first. And then and then also that has to exist. But so yeah, in the future I could see yeah. saying that. This sort of Oracle can update this verified field and the contracts changing for things like that.
0: I feel like 2023 might bring a lot of that actually, because with grant uh, delivering on these state proofs and now switching more focus on adoption in regards to cross chain applications and oracles so I feel like there might be a lot mm-hmm. of interesting yeah, stuff. It, it interesting. Up.
1: I know Oracle is still in testnet. I talked to them a little bit, I haven't talked to them a lot about I, I mentioned these things that kind of put these kind of planted planted the seeds them quite some time ago about being able to do some of these off-chain verifications. But I know they're busy. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we see multiple Oracle services now grand of varying complexities. So yeah, I'll either hopefully can use them or worst case, write one if I have to, if if, if no one else does. But yeah, it's been fun. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, there's lots and lots of challenges, but I can go and, the, and the, that, I mean, it's the time I've taught long enough. But uh, yeah, generically, a lot of contract stuff was painful early on. I think now I like mostly get it, but there's still times of frustration. Yeah. But uh, tooling just keeps getting better. And I think what they're trying to do with John Woods initiatives for things like IGO Kit, I think IGO Kit and Beaker and the, that of, of, of what they're trying to do is.
0: Can only help yeah because there's so many tools in the ecosystem right but putting an algorand branded umbrella over the things that algorand delivers and essentially combining them all into a single ecosystem i think this is one of the useful ways to just increase user experience with developers right because it's all about the ease of use and the development to increase the adoption in this case but um once again Patrick, thanks again. You're a perfect guest for the podcast styled interviews. I than... a lot, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: this is a perfect setup, actually. But as a tradition in, in osomalgo this would be the eighth episode, I, I will be following and publishing it shortly after we finish here, but usually finish the podcast by asking for if you were had a chance to give an advice for, for, to as, aspiring software engineers who want to try their hands on blockchain development or on Algorand or just generally get into Web3 space would be interested to hear your advice in that case and suggestions for people who are are, are, are really fascinated by the topic by trying to get into it in the first place.
1: Yeah, it's tough for me in some ways. It's almost like when people ask, oh, hey, uh, what school should I go to? Or what language should I learn first? And things like that. It it just, it's just, it always feels like uh, people tend to reply with just what they did as like the way to do it. And. I think, but at the same time, I'll preface it that everyone learns differently. And for some people, it might be a very different path that works best for them. But I think understanding how the nodes work, I think to have that foundation of kind of understanding it as low level as possible helps everything. Run a node set up a participation key, participate in consensus, see that you're participating, understand, okay, why this proposal happened? Like, why am I not getting as many votes as I should? Like, statistically, I should get this many. Why, why not? am I not? Is it not being fast enough? Understand networking, understand the node, understand transactions, run your own node, like submit, use goal to submit your transactions, don't use para, right? And then that's like the building blocks of, okay, if I use goal clerk send, and I'm sending algo with goal, then goal is just constructing a transaction and talking to my local node and sending the transaction. So it's like kind of building blocks of of what is really happening under the covers with just simple things like I want to send algo, or I want to opt in. And... Kind of goal in some ways gives you a kind of still somewhat user friendly way where you can just on the command line do it but it's still pretty low level and i think build build up on that to understand the different transaction types how those fit in and then the contract logic now with the sandbox i think now that the sandbox is being packaged up a lot nicer that does al- allow you to start kind of playing in literally the sandbox yeah. where you can set up your own private network. Like right now with NFTs, I have a bunch of Docker images. I can run like a, a, a CAN system test where I stand up a private network dev mode algorithm instance that auto funds like six or seven accounts with hard code mnemonics, like this is buyer one, buyer two, buyer three, this is mm-hmm. the admin account and you know, all that. And then I even submit transactions to turn off participation rewards, because I, I started wondering why some of my system tests were failing at a certain point, Is because you still receive participation rewards in dev mode. Participation modes ended in all our mainnet, but if you set your own private network, the participation pool starts with a set amount, they'll still receive participation rewards. And so it's like I did all these things to bootstrap, and then it sets up all my services, and I'll it's, it sets up the watcher, the public APIs, the private APIs, the nodes, and I'll submit the transact. I'll actually call my API, get the transactions, sign them independently, and submit them, just as if it was a user using a wallet, and then wait until the watcher. Will have seen it on the blockchain and then verify against the node and then also against my other database to verify like did that get updated correctly and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for users, it's really just just start doing. I, I think that the best way to learn is to do. And it's like for some people, read you can read these solutions and tutorials, the developer diagram site, the developer.algorand.org site has. Tons and tons of solutions, tutorials, and blogs. And I think they're kind of buried nowadays, to be honest. But it's a hard problem to surface. And that said, there's actually really good content there. It's impressive, some of the stuff people have written. I wrote one a long time ago. I wrote like a solution on exporting exporting transactions for taxes. I did that back in 2020, I think, because nothing was supporting our grant. Oh, I,
0: I think I remember this one. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of, if you look at those, there's some really good, like full end-to-end canned kind of solutions for multiple languages. So there's stuff for Go, there's stuff for TypeScript, JavaScript, Python, Rust, C Sharp, whatever, pick your poison. I'd say maybe go to the solutions and tutorials, and maybe that, if you... That's a good way for some people is take something that a language you already understand. Look, take one of those solutions tutorials, stand it all up and understand it. And then kind of go from there. And then that and the Algorand Discord, obviously. It's almost too busy for me. I'm so busy with NFTs now. I'm not able to spend as much time there as I used to. But I still try to be there and be helpful when I can. But there's definitely a lot of... That's really where the technical discussions are, is on Algorand's Discord for anyone doing development.
0: And yeah, I think the the folks there are still doing an amazing job. Like it's it's oh yeah, it's basically on demand Stack Overflow. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, but, but
1: Barngie, like I, the, the, I don't. I keep worrying he's gonna burn himself out. The guy doesn't sleep. He
0: yeah, yeah. I, I think he needs some fleet of Discord automated bots to to help him a little <laughs> bit with like some, incidents. Some
1: bar- he needs some Barngie bots.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But yeah, he's just to give a shout out to him. He's doing a stellar job there as well. But, yeah, I know everything's great. Answer.
1: And it's great to see more engagement. It wasn't there at all in the past, like zero, basically. And then early on, it was Jason Weathersby and Fabrice a lot of times in the Discord answering questions. Fabrice is one of the cryptographers of the foundation. He's pretty hardcore, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's you know, amazing. He's he on paper, he's involved in it. He's fantastic. And he was like helping with almost like day to day infrastructure stuff. I think thankfully, they're letting him focus solely on what is his core, yeah. what he should be working on. But now there's a lot of additional people. The DevRel team's hired. You've got Nolan and Margie and what Monopoly Joe, I think, to the foundation. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have Stefan now with the arc manager. There's this, They're adding a lot more staff that's directed and engaged. And you're having also some direct developer engagement which i think is fantastic to see i've been on the other end i know how awkward it can be as a developer to be customer facing in some cases it can be kind of awkward but it it is really great to see people like john gennati in some of the channels and engaged i know it's probably frustrating for him sometimes but it's really helpful for the community to have access to some of the, the core engineers but I also think it's useful for them to see in some cases the pain points yeah. that the builders have.
0: And with that, Patrick, uh, <laughs> like I, I can't thank you more for, for for this. I think like the original schedule, I was trying to optimize it for sixty minutes, but we went uh, beyond. <laughs> yeah, my I I I did yeah,
1: you like like our our, uh, our company team meetings. We we're originally supposed to be like fifteen minute stand ups, and they tend to be like hour and a half, two hours. And it's not all my fault. It's part of it. Usually it's my fault. But it's because we talk, we talk a lot of times we're our grand fans as well. So a lot of times our meetings end up being talking about, hey, Mm -hmm. what just happened yesterday? Or you see this tweet? And then we start talking about like market conditions or what does this really mean to have a prime minister that's pro-crypto and britain and mm-hmm. that and does it really is it does it really mean anything and what's the cdc gonna really look like it's so we'll go off on these tangents and then we'll also talk business and future plans and we're always trying to gauge you know what features we talk about and not because there's still a lot of stuff that hasn't really been talked about some stuff we want to do but um
0: uh, I'd be more than happy to have you at some point after you guys are going to release the features that you highlighted in the future roadmap, but uh, aside yeah, from that, se- that. Uh,
1: hopefully segments will hopefully be certainly live. I mean, like I said, they're live now for kind of private mm-hmm. of sorts, but uh, they'll be more exposed and ho- hopefully completely public, hopefully by end of year.
0: All right. Thanks again for the, for the content and the insights provided here. It's. like amazing content basically for the listeners out there thank you for staying with us if you survived this long i think you're a really dedicated (laughs) fan and i think at this point you can be classified as a a entry-level expert in regards to nfd system thank you for listening
1: thanks appreciate it